Welcome to the VVV Podcast. Today we are joined by Stephen Hilton, Head of Solutions at Space and Time. This AMA is hosted by Andy and Jesse, two of VVV's amazing researchers. Space and Time is a decentralized, multi-chain data platform supplying analytics for dApps and developers, mostly in gaming, but also in DeFi. They offer SQL plus APIs to conjoin on-chain and off-chain data via a single query. All their data tables are blockchain secured and connect analytics to smart contracts with trustless SQL proofs powered by novel cryptography. In addition, the platform claims to support large analytics workloads which can be scaled to hundreds of terabytes without requiring centralized databases or analytics. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of our BBB AMA sessions. I'm Andy, and today I'm joined by my research colleague, Jesse. Hi, Jesse. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. How about you? Yeah, great, great. I'm excited for today's AMA because we have a, a special guest. And maybe you want to introduce uh, the project that we are talking to, to the audience. Sure. Today we're talking to Space and Time, better to Stephen Hilton, the head of solutions at Space and Time. And we're going to talk about how they're building the world's first de decentralized data warehouse and how the solutions will change the way web free projects can work and will be able to work with data. Stefan, come on the stage. <laughs> all right. Can you hear me all right? Yeah, we can hear you. Perfect. Okay. Welcome, yeah. Stephen. How are you? Yes, thank you very much. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Love to awesome. hear that. Maybe just getting started with a simple question. Um, what is your background? How did you get involved in blockchain? Yeah. Uh, thank you, everyone. I appreciate the, uh, the time and the offer here today. Uh, you know, I, I really kind of got into blockchain uh, kind of gradually you know, going all the way back to 2015, kind of, you know, um, seeing Bitcoin come up and the birth of Ethereum and more from a technology perspective, like, how does that work? How can that, how can that possibly be secure? And then kind of digging into it and reading the papers and just doing some self-education. Um, you know, and it didn't take long before, you, you know, you could take the jump from that cryptocurrency, the idea of of Bitcoin and, and what Ethereum was doing with EVMs and saying, you could really extrapolate this to all sorts of applications in the real world, right? Like beyond just currency, you know, tokenization, governance, like there's a whole range of different things that you could do, you know, DNS, ENS. Um, and so it's, it, it really got me excited about the technology. Um, and I, you know, I've, I've been around in analytics for 20 years, uh, I went through that big data revolution, right, when Hadoop kind of came out and we saw uh, all of these open source projects come and really change the way that most companies did business. And now, you know, it's been, what, more than, it's almost 15 years later. No one talks about big data anymore because it's just the way people work. It's just, it's now the status quo. Right. If you if you didn't have a big data plan back then, you're now out of business. That company is no more. And I think Web3 now 
is on that same journey, right? Like, I, I think the companies that don't have a Web3 strategy in development and really in execution now are not going to make it in the next 10 years. I think it's going to be that transformational. So I got very excited very early. Um, yeah, so that, that's kind of how I got into blockchain specifically. If you want my, my background, sure. Uh, like I mentioned, tw 20 years in analytics, uh, data management, uh, working with, uh, I'm in, in, in California in the San Francisco, so you could say San Francisco, Silicon Valley, working with a lot of those big data companies, um, big web companies that operate at petabyte scale, just, just the way that they operate. Right. So, um, you know, specifically, uh, did some consulting, worked at Teradata, where I ran their solution engineering and customer success organizations, um, in including some internal customer analytics, helped with their telemetry, really helped build out our telemetry strategy there. Um, and so have a lot of experience in data warehousing and in analytics. When uh, last year, when Scott Dykstra and Nate Holiday, who also uh, were at Teradata, and we worked together for years and years, they approached me and said, hey, we have this Web3 company that we're building called Space and Time, right? It's early yet, but we want you to come on and help us build out the solution side of it. Uh, it was kind of a no-brainer. Like, Nate, Scott, they're awesome. I've worked with them for years. Excuse <clears throat> me, it was in a in an industry that was super exciting. Like I said, I, I, I could just see the, the growth that was going to happen in the industry. And, and really, Web3 someday will be like big data is today. Like, oh, yeah, I remember when we used to call it Web3. Well, you, you won't call it Web3 in the future because it'll just be normal. Right. So I'm, I'm excited to be kind of at the beginning of that journey. Love to hear that. So you've also always been interested in blockchain and disrupting the status quo. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Awesome, yeah. So I'm I'm really glad, yeah, that you took the risk here yeah, to to leave the existing comfort zone, yeah, of of the big data space that is so established, yeah, <laughs> to try something new, yeah, because I'm I'm sure not everyone will have the courage to to do so. Well, it was it was an easy risk to take because, like I said, I've I've worked with startups in the past. Um, you know, sometimes if you don't know the founders, it can be a little hit and miss, but Nate and Scott as founders, they were known quantity. Like I knew what I was getting into. I've worked with them before. They're, they're, you know, very talented folks. So it was, yeah, it was a risk, but it was a pretty easy risk to assess and decide it was a hundred percent worth it. I'm sure it's worth it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So <clears throat> Right. So thank you very much yeah, for the introduction. So before we dive deeper into the project itself, yeah. So maybe you could explain a little bit the, the term data warehouse, because I think most of the listeners uh, are familiar with, with servers or data centers, but the term data warehouse is not very often uh, used. And I think, as you mentioned, it is an essential piece of infrastructure that is running in the background that is very, very important, but no one knows about it. Yeah. So could you elaborate a little bit more about the, the functionality of a data warehouse and why it's so important? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there, I'll start by saying there's... Oftentimes, there's some confusion 
when you say data warehouse, people think database. And it's an understandable confusion because both are typically ANSI standard SQL. So the SQL, the, the structured query language is the same, right? They both run on SQL, which means they both run on the same set of SQL editors. Uh, the, you can interface them with a lot of the same tools. So it's, you know, they're very similar in, in kind of appearance to end users. But if you kind of peel that back, you start looking at things like the architecture. What were they intended to do? What was the problem they were intended to solve? They get, they get to be pretty different pretty quick. So uh, you may have heard terms like OLTP or OLAP. OLTP, TP standing for transactional processing. That would be your, your databases like MySQL or Postgres, things that are designed to be able to handle high transactional loads. So very simple queries, but returned very quickly. And that's different mm -hmm. than, yeah, that's different than like OLAP, O-L-A-P, the AP there standing for analytic processing, right? This is, I have five years of history and I want to do a trend analysis, you know, multivariate, and I need to, you know, roll this up and then project it into the future by six months. And so like those are just massive problem, massive amounts of data, massive amount of compute. And so you have to have different choices or you have to, if you're going to have both of those run at optimal speed relative to their workload, you have to have different design choices. So the transactional one, for instance, um, typically they have a very lightweight optimizer. So the SQL comes in, it gets translated to machine steps, but those are, you know, are, are really it. The optimization is intended to happen at, uh, by the developer at build time because then the machine doesn't have to do a lot. Because if you spend, say, 100 milliseconds optimizing a query before it even starts executing, that's a real problem if you're trying to get 150 millisecond response time of an API. Whereas if you talk about analytic processing, like the OLAP, right? if you're going to run something and you're measuring the runtime in seconds to minutes, like let's say you're going to do a large trend analysis and it's going to run for 90 seconds. Now, does it matter that you spent that extra 100 milliseconds really optimizing the SQL? Because it may actually save you, it may take you from 90 seconds down to 60 seconds, right? So the amount mm -hmm. of, you know, the amount of optimization up front is very different between the two systems. And the physical design of the servers are very different as well. Like, you know, uh, uh, transactional systems like Postgres Usually one instance, one server, right? One container. Whereas most data warehouses, almost all modern data warehouses are MPP, massively parallel processing. They're, you know, three or more servers working in concert, logically represented as warehouse. So you don't interact with the servers independently. You, you, you interact with the logical entity of the data warehouse and behind the scenes it shards the data and it, it, it distributes the processing so that you can get through large amounts of data very quickly. It's kind of like saying that um, you have trucks and you have trains, right? If you, if you want to, uh, you want to move packages, you could do it with either one. You could put them on a pickup truck or you could put them on a train, but the scale is different. 
and the optimization of both of those two choices are different. The truck's going to be good for buzzing around town. It can stop and start quickly. It can deliver packages very quickly over a short distance, whereas a train obviously can can take massive amounts of cargo across the country very efficiently, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's just, they're just different designs, which I should mention that, um, you know, almost all organizations have both. They have a transactional system, they have an analytic system, which means that the, the data really gets generated in the transactional system and then moved across to the analytic system for the larger decision support or sometimes to actually generate scoring, machine learning scoring, that actually goes back into the transactional system, right? So you could imagine uh, you have a loyalty program. There's some threshold that's that you're looking for. Well, the records come into the transactional system, move across the analytic system. It's determined that they now are a most valuable customer because they've made they've crossed some threshold that is non-trivial to just aggregate to. Right, combination of engagement plus purchase, lifetime value, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so now they, now you have that flag for that user. You can push that flag back to the analytic system. And so there's oftentimes transactional. There's an analytic. There's an ETL tier to move data back and forth. There's an enterprise scheduler to make sure you have. So there's all of this effort around put, you know, having both of these in place. And so there's a new movement uh, in the last couple of years in this space called the hybrid transactional analytic processing, HTAP or HTAP. Just means that you have one platform that can do both. It can handle the transactional and it can handle the analytic workloads. So to kind of awkwardly go back to my truck train analogy, it would be like having a you know a train that also has trucks bolted to the side of it. And when somebody wants a quick response, you know, you, you just kind of like, I don't know, have an armature that drops the truck alongside the train. You drop the package in, it goes off, delivers it really quick, comes back and gets reattached to the train. I, that's that, I know that's like a weird image, but... I understand, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I like this analogy. Yeah, that's that's yeah. great. I mean, it has I mean, it has all sorts of benefits. Just think of all the tech stack simplicity you get out of it. Don't need the ETL engine anymore. Uh, ETL engine, you don't need... The scheduler, everything's just in one system. So the cost and the maintenance and the labor all, you know, all, I don't say go away entirely, but they all get dramatically reduced. And the speed to development, probably even more importantly, goes up because now you're only dealing with one system. Uh, so you can d- get through that development much more quickly. And the time to market uh, goes way down. So you get more efficient. You can get your product out to the market faster. And that's super critical when you talk about industries like Web3, right? And Absolutely. And so um, what, what, what is the, what is the, the general uh, problem that space and time solves with the decentralized approach? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, exactly that. Like if, if you look out at, at the Web3 space right now, um, kind of like similar where you have the transaction, you have the analytics and you have the ETL and all stitches together. You have a lot of those same piece parts, but today that transactional system actually has another thing in front of it called the blockchain. So you have the blockchain, which has to be indexed because the, the, the data structure that makes the blockchain magic is not very user friendly for most people to deal with, right? And it's, it's designed for machine efficiency, not human efficiency. And so you have to take that, you have to index it. There's a lot of companies that do that, put it into, you know, either into a transactional system so you can deal, 
do something immediately with it or move it into an analytics system to crunch those numbers to maybe go back to, an, to a transactional system and then finally back to your user. So it actually makes that collection of stuff more complex. And so what Space of Time has done, besides collapsing the transactional and the analytic engine into one logical unit, one logical data warehouse, so we can simplify that, we also ingest all of this blockchain data to simplify that part of it as well. So now a new user to Space and Time can log in, having done nothing else but log in once, will see all of the blockchain data that we have indexed represented as relational tables. Right? You have a contract table and a liquidity pool table and a DEX trade table and an NFT table and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we also, of course, have the, the primitives. We have a block table and a transaction table and an event log table. And then we, you can also give us a smart contract and we will generate new tables automatically for you based on the events emitted from your, uh, your smart contract, you know, whatever address you hand us. Um, but the, the intention here is to just simplify that entire data and do it that cryptographically guaranteed. So, you know, the space and time has a piece of novel cryptography called proof of SQL, which essentially is a way that we can take a SQL statement, take those machine steps of what's going to happen logically on what data, and then merge those into a single hash that can be replicated on a validator tier. So the validators come to consensus. And if the database matches the validator tier, then we can guarantee that the query that was submitted was not tampered with and the data was not tampered with. And so you know, we can publish that query result to a smart contract with confidence. And of course, space and time, that, that's all in place to support space and time's decentralization, right? So uh, we can run across a number of different node that's operators. That's awesome. That's awesome, yeah, because that's, I think, the, the one of the biggest limitations yeah, of the whole blockchain uh, technology, yeah, that you have very limited block space available, yeah, and it's quite expensive to handle larger uh, data amounts. So... I see that that this technology yeah, has really a groundbreaking innovation yeah, for the for the whole space. So, before we enter the community questions, could you give us some examples of uh, the usage of data warehouses in our daily lives? So, let's say besides the web free space, where where do we see data warehouses as an ordinary user of products today? Uh, that's a really good question. Uh, you, you'll see, you probably won't, if you're just a consumer wandering around the world, you're not in technology, um, you won't directly see the data warehouse, but you'll see the effects of them. So, for example, anytime you go to any retailer, any retailer at all, like you go to Best Buy, you, when, they, when they're checking you out, that transaction goes into a data warehouse. It flows today uh, as far as I'm aware, they go into a transactional system which gets rolled up and put into a data warehouse. But those, um, <clears throat> those transactions go into a data warehouse which then go into your loyalty program. So when you get the receipt that says, you know, your loyalty uh, points are, you know, whatever, 100,000, 100,000 Best Buy points, um, that came from the data warehouse because they don't store all of everyone's purchases 
all the time on all the registers, obviously. Right? So there's lookups there. Or um, uh, I'll give you a, a great example. Um, working with a large company in Silicon Valley here who makes phones that are very popular. I don't know if I should say <laughs> the uh, I name of it, but... It's maybe a fruit behind it. Yeah, who knows? I don't know. <laughs> could, 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 could be. Um, but yeah, like they, they, they're very uh, brand conscious and they don't want users to have bad experience when they release a new phone. And so, um, you know, we were able to look through all of the, the supply chain, all of the logs of all of the steps of all of the devices across the entire supply chain. And when they released a new phone, they started getting they started getting back returns at a slightly higher rate than they were expecting. And what we could do and did was to look to see, you know, is there, is there a lot number that all of those phones came from? It turns out there was. It turns out that in the camera on the front of the phone, there was a little spring that was just tightened like half a turn too tight and it was causing a problem with the focus, the autofocus on the phone. And so they were getting returns in. Well, since we had all of this stuff in the data, data warehouse, we could go backwards from the lot, you know, all the way back to the specific dates in which um, that lot was a problem. And then we could turn around and go forward again to determine which stores have those phones and which serial numbers are those phones on. And so they could, like within 24 hours, they could issue this, you know, this alert to say any of these types of phones that match these serial numbers, pull them off the shelf and return them, right? And we'll, we'll, uh, I don't know what they did with them, whatever they did with them. But it was like 50,000 phones. And that, of course, you know, you say, well, what did that, that, that identified an issue ahead of the consumer ever noticing, but that lends itself to brand loyalty, which, again, this particular mysterious company is very, very oh, important. Man. That's really powerful, yeah. <clears throat> so I think there are thousands of applications here behind that no one knows to optimize different workflows and yeah, impressive. So I, I'd like to hand over to Jesse also yeah. to the next section. Um, we're gonna go over to the community questions now and you've already showed us that data warehouses are needed for Jesse. every big solution um, or <laughs> if they wanna go big and- I don't hear Jesse. Oh, you can't. Can you hear me now? Are you muted? Can you hear me now? No, I can. I can hear Jesse. Um, Sometimes we have some some strange audio issues with the Twitter Spaces. Stephen, can you hear us? I can hear you. Can you hear me? We can. Yes, I can hear you clearly. Can you hear me? I, I love this game. This is the new game <laughs> of like everyone working remote, which is the "Can you hear me?" game. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. I think Jesse will reconnect. And let's see if we can if we can get him back on. So it's it's weird sometimes sometimes we cannot cannot hear each other, but some participants can hear. So, so it's it's strange. Yeah. So I think he will he will dial in again 
So let's continue with the questions in between. So <clears throat> we will start with the community segment now. And the first question from our community is, how does space and time hybrid data architecture perform in comparison to other data warehouses? What are the mm. main benefits of using space and time compared to other solutions that are already exist on the market? Yeah, good question. Um, so there's, there's a benchmark out in the data warehouse industry called the TCPH benchmark. There's actually a whole set of TCP benchmarks, but the TCPH is specific to data warehousing. And so uh, we ran that kind of early on, it's a number of months ago, we ran that uh, just to see where we benchmarked and you can kind of find other products out there and what they benchmarked at. And we came out really good. Like so we kind of surprised all of us for the first out of a new database technology. Uh, we were in line with a lot of, of, of who we would consider, you know, uh, competitors in the, in the space. And so we're feeling really good about our performance. Uh, I think part of that's helped by this new HTAP or the hybrid analytic tr uh, transactional analytic approach because the TCPH has a lot of real quick queries mixed in with, uh, you know, a medium number of medium queries to run in a, you know, I don't know, 10 seconds or so mixed in with a smaller number of really large queries. And so, you know, it's a measure of how well one platform can kind of manage all of that. And, um, you know, we were, we, like I said, we came out really well. So we're happy about that. Um, the main benefits compared to other solutions, well, we're decentralized. And, you know, like that by itself in the segment we're in right now is all I really need to say. There's so many companies that we worked with that say we were on this journey to be decentralized and the thing that's giving us grief is this big database or this big data warehouse. We have this big data need, right? We're, like I said, a DeFi company that's trying to take, you know, a year of token pair history and do a 30-day rolling average to get to a point where they can project that two months into the future so they can sell an options trade, right? Mm -hmm. A great use case would never fit on-chain from a DeFi, decentralized finance DeFi, that, you know, you can't do that on-chain. So the, a lot of times the only choice these companies have historically is to centralize that part of it, to bring it into Postgres or bring it into Snowflake. And let Snowflake chew through the problem in a short amount of time and then push that back out. But no, is it, is it really DeFi now? I mean, it's kind of, <laughs> it's mostly, it's 90% it's yeah, tamper-proof, right? What's 10% tamperable? Well, yeah, so you see the problem. So sometimes we've worked with companies, they all you have to do is replace Snowflake and you win because you're a Web3 native decentralized data warehouse. You get it. Right. It's just plug and play. And the nice thing is it's all SQL. So, again, it is very plug and play. You, you, you're tired of that, that Postgres. That's not giving enough power or it's too centralized. You just pull that out, put it in space and time. Right. Snowflake giving you problems. Pull out that, put it in space and time. That's the nice thing about being structured query languages. It's very easy to pull and replace. 
That's really impressive, yeah. So <clears throat> we are we are mainly used yeah, to to have some drawbacks in the web free space, yeah, in terms of, of performance compared to, to other systems. So I'm really glad yeah, to hear that that your solution can compete yeah, with the existing applications yeah, that well. So congratulations here, yeah. So let's can see you... if we can have our colleague back here. Yeah. I heard Jesse, him. Can you hear I heard him. Yeah, you have perfect. perfect. Yeah, <laughs> back again. Welcome. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, so you already touched on decentralization being very important, but uh, I think there are quite some challenges coming up, especially if you have both transactional and analytical capacities at the same time. What are those? What? Yeah. The challenges of. Uh, of building a decentralized data warehouse oh, or, or building a transactional and analytic at the same time. Okay. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So um, the biggest challenges with building a HTAP database is probably contending with the needs of the transactional side of that approach. And what I mean by that is um, if, it, 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 I mentioned it before, like if a query comes in, you have to decide how much effort you're going to allow your program to put into optimizing that query, or that SQL statement. If you put in a lot of effort into it, that really pays out huge dividends on the analytics side. And again, you can take it from 90 seconds down to 30 seconds, right? Because you're doing it in a smarter way. But you don't want, but somewhere, um, the processing has to decide which engine that query is going to go to. It's going to go to the analytic engine, it's going to go to the transactional, which means something has to pre-parse that query. And <clears throat> excuse me, that pre-parsing adds latency, even if it's 50 milliseconds. And so, you know, as an example, one of the things we did was to always send all queries immediately to the transactional side. And so it's really incumbent on the transactional engine to look at it and decide, whoa, that's too big for me. Let's throw that over to the analytic side and let the analytic engine uh, work on that problem rather than the transactional side. So, um, you know, it means that the transactional, the, the point at which the query is submitted through an API or through a JDBC request, and the point at which the transactional system can start working on the problem is as short as possible. And so a lot of engineering has gone into making, making sure that other things that would be really easy to say, well, just pre-parse the query and do this, or pre-parse the query and do that. Like you really have to resist that impulse, right? So that you're not pre-parsing before it gets to the transactional query, or the transactional. Let the transactional engine get its first, you know, its first take on the query and then, um, you know, push it over to other engines as needed. Interesting. So does it also mean that um, it potentially costs more? No, it should cost less, right? In, in, when I say cost, I'm talking about latency because at the end of the day, nobody cares about how much CPU a query costs. Right? It, it, that the CPU is only there to make the, at a, at a transactional, uh, the transactional side, you could throw all the compute you wanted at it. If it didn't raise the latency, you're good. In fact, you want to shrink that latency. So latency, I'm just, again, talking about 
the, num the amount of time usually in milliseconds between when the request was issued and when the request is fulfilled. Perfect, perfect. So that's also a good segue to the next uh, community question. Um, will this decentralized token incentivized architecture enable you to provide data warehouse service at a lower price than other current Web2 solutions? Yep, that's that's the plan. That's the plan. We're, we're planning to be uh, cheaper than other web solutions. You know, if you look at like Snowflake is, when you're at that scale, Snowflake is obviously big um, in the market. Um, you know, so we think that by decentralizing, we can incentive, we can keep the node operators incentivized, you know, with, with most of that value uh, and still come in under what other centralized providers will offer. And by the way, if, if like, let's say you're running, uh, you're the, I don't know, the CTO of a startup and you, you know, you're, you're burning through X number of dollars of analytic usage on Snowflake today and, uh, and space time comes in and says, we can cut that in half. Okay, cool. But what if I really don't want to pay anything for it? I want it to be free. Okay. You know what? If you think you need, let's say 10 nodes of capacity, put down 10 nodes of capacity and become a node operator. And we'll have a mechanism for you to say, when you join the network to say, I want to use my own nodes, right? All my queries go to my nodes. Now there's still some cost there in maintenance and overhead and labor and et cetera, et cetera. So put down 20 nodes, right? At that point, the, the, the cost, the labor cost, the operational cost of operating 10 nodes versus 20 nodes is not going to double. And so you put down 20 nodes, sell 10 back to the network and operate it really at a real net zero or put down 30 nodes operated at a profit center, right? So, we're one of the only data warehouses that can kind of come to market and say, you know, if you want to join the network as, as a node operator, awesome. You can actually make money and you get a data warehouse out of it. <laughs> that's, that's a wild idea. Yeah. Crazy concept. <laughs> Amazing. <It's really> interesting, <laughs> Because it not only um, gives them the ability to make it cheaper, but also decentralize your um, project more. It's yeah, and, and you know, not not a lot of smaller companies own data centers anymore. Like they'll go to the clouds and whatever. And we're we're working with Azure and AWS and Tencent and others to have a marketplace one-click deployment of space and time, so that you may not need to actually even be a node operator rather than just. Or, I'm sorry, you can be the node operator, not the node provider. Cloud provides nodes; you just operate them. So. Um, but we see a lot of large enterprise companies, so Web2 enterprises that will be interested in this because they have a skunk works. They're just beginning this Web3 journey. They don't know what they don't know, right? The nice thing about space and time, it's a data warehouse. Enterprises have run on data warehouses for the last 30 years. They, they could go get any one of their data analysts from anywhere in the company, put them in front of space and time, and that analyst will know what to do with that interface. Right? They have the tooling. They don't need to be retrained. They don't have to understand how blocks are structured. They could just start looking at the data model, the ERD diagram, and start getting value out of it that day. And so there's a really strong play here for enterprises. 
And by the way, you can do this for free because if you are a big company, you have your own data center, put a rack in there for space and time, operate it at a net, you know, the, the software operates at a, at a profit enough so that it offsets your cost for your skunk works. Now, essentially, like going to your VP and saying, hey, I want to try out some Web3 stuff. And they just say, what's the budget? And you say, zero. I just need a little spot <laughs> in the data amazing. center. You, you earn money by, by contributing to the system. Yeah, that's, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that's amazing. That's amazing. You already touched on an important point, and that's um, accessibility, because it's the thing that Web3 in general has not nailed down yet. And um, that maybe goes also back to use cases. Um, what are the use cases you are excited about when it comes to feeding query data into smart contracts? What do you see in the future? Yeah, that's uh, a good question. Um, there's a few different use cases. I mentioned earlier that you know, for a certain class of customers, we just have to be decentralized and we win. Like it's as easy as that. There's other ones that uh, that want to bring their off-chain data or like you know their enterprise data, their their company data, and they want to join it with on-chain data, right? And of course, we're a data warehouse. Yes, we have blockchain indexing as a set of tables and a schema in our data network. But you bring your data, like you bring your customer list. You can tie that that customer ID to a wallet. You can now join that wallet to blockchain data indexing already in space and time. You can do things like, you know, figure out what percentage of your customers today. Like, let's I'll use Best Buy as an example. I used to work for Best Buy years ago, so they'll be fine with it. Um, <laughs> the uh, let, Let's say the Best Buy is like, all right, we're going to do a Web3 initiative, but we want to validate before we do it. We want to validate how many of our customers really care about Web3. How many of them? own a wallet, right? And if you could, the, the hard part is getting the link between the user ID, the customer ID, and that wallet. But once you do that, like once you say, hey, as part of our reward, we'll give everyone a $5 Best Buy, you know, gift card if you tie a wallet to your account. Cool, a bunch of people go do. Now you can go take that list of customer ID to wallet address and go see, because everything's transparent. You can just see what they do in Web3 and how active are they really, or did they just sign up? They know enough to go create a wallet to get five bucks, right? And so you can start gauging, um, is this program even worth it? And how fast is it growing? Because again, this is all time series, right? This is essentially, a, this, this ledger grows over time. So you can say, what's the growth of Web3 interest in my customer base? So uh, there's all sorts of really interesting use cases um, from there. Of course, th uh, gaming is a huge. Like we're working with a lot of Web3 games. Um, you can imagine like uh, a, a lot of the games now are going to have skins that are NFTs or weapons that are NFTs or you know all of this in-game collateral that's all tied to NFTs, so that you can now sell it on the open market. Essentially, you know, you could take your your whatever. Uh, your gun from a first-person shooter, and you could level that up, and then you could go sell that on OpenSea to another player who wants to just start the game, right? And they're looking for a really powerful weapon to start with. And you could imagine, like these, like you have a, a Web3 game that has to spool game telemetry somewhere, and so you could spool that into space and time as the match is progressing. Progressing, 
your character runs forward three steps and they jump and they dodge and they shoot and then they jump and they run left. Um, all of these logs are going into space and time. At the end of the match, one SQL statement aggregates that up to the relevant statistics and they could actually put that into a dynamic NFT table on space and time so that the NFT that's created for that gun is a dynamic NFT. The dynamic part of it is an API call to space and time. And so what it means is you have your gun, you go around, the, the, uh, the match ends, space and time aggregates all of the telemetry up to the aggregate. It gets updated into the dynamic NFT table. And that's also the transactional table. So when OpenSea goes to look to see what the accuracy of that weapon is, it's updated before the, the game even says game over, right? Before the, the splash screen of the game is even like game over, you already have that dynamic NFT updated and it's live on OpenSea or wherever else you want to post it. And so there's a, this, you know, this ties together a lot of very interesting real-time use cases for gaming. Definitely. Generally, the, the, full, the full NFT space yeah, has many, many opportunities, I guess, yeah, with these dynamic NFTs. And I think we are just start to understand yeah, the full potential of this new approach in this area. So basically, you are competing with, with many existing centralized data warehouses on the market in future. Um, do you have any concerns that those uh, legacy data warehouse providers implement your proof of SQL technology? And if so, what would your approach uh, be to, to attract enterprise clients yeah, to move over to your system? Yeah, um, yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Um, we do have a patent on proof of SQL, um, and we we are going to eventually open source it as well. So it's you know it's really as we're kind of getting started, we want to protect that a little bit, but it'll eventually be open source, like all of space and time will be open source. Um, but if you kind of step back a little bit and say, why would a centralized database want to run proof of SQL on, on their data. I mean, what is, or even ask the question, what does proof of SQL actually get you, right? It's, and just very briefly, I mentioned this before, proof of SQL, just a way to generate a hash that guarantees that that SQL ran on that data and it has not been tampered with. But that, that makes sense when you're not the one operating the nodes. Right? So you have a decentralized environment where you have a third party. It's not just vendor and customer. There's vendor and node operator and customer. Um, you know, that's, that, that's where it becomes interesting. Or you have blockchain data, which is publicly transparent. You have a, a data set that's available for everybody because now you can actually prove it. So, for example, we just talked about the game telemetry. Let's say you wanted to mint an NFT uh, that said, if you jump 100 times in a particular match, we're going to mint an NFT for you. It's an achievement, right? We'll call it Frogger. You get the Frogger achievement because you jumped 100 times in a match. Okay, great. So, you know, player jumps 100 times, space and time at the end of it, aggregates the telemetry, uh, identifies that, sends it to a smart contract. Smart contract says, mint the NFT. 
Now, Space and Time doesn't really know that the game engine had 100 jumps. It just knows that it was reported to it that there were 100 jumps, right? In other words, like the source of the data is going to be what the source of the data is. Right? This is a data warehouse. You bring your own data, right? It's, it's uh, mm -hmm. you can have, yeah, you can have tables that are um, append only, but, uh, and, and, you know, that's oftentimes uh, uh, recommended given the use case, but it doesn't have to be. You can have tables that are just data warehouse tables that, you know, you can update and delete and they're, they're mutable. So um, then the question is, okay, how does this translate to, say, Snowflake? Well, when you log into Snowflake, you're logging into a centralized authority. And Snowflake controls not just your data, but it also controls all of the logic on your data, right? Or all of the, the, the computation. It, it's the engine, right? And so the question is, you know, if, if Snowflake doesn't have blockchain data, uh, the proof of SQL, I don't know that that makes a lot of sense because what would they be proving? That they themselves didn't actually modify it, but they themselves would be the ones running that process. It's not decentralized. And so, you know, it's, it's you know, if they want, in other words, if they really wanted to cheat as a central authority, they could do that and you don't have any recourse. It's not until mm -hmm. you get to a decentralized environment where, yes, space and time, you know, we, we wrote the software but we open source it and we have all these node operators and they're just running the software. Like we have nothing to, there's, there's no interaction between us and, you know, what, uh, what the, the node operators are doing. And so proof of SQL is really designed to make sure that the node operators or someone in the network is not tampering with the data. Um, or again, like blockchain where there's a publicly transparent data set that that everything ties out to that. So, you know, space and time decentralized, I mean, it's a great question. Um, yeah, I think that that was very, very important also for me to understand yeah, the, <clears throat> the, the real benefits. And yeah, you are absolutely right. Yeah, it doesn't make sense at all yeah, to, to just copy um, this consensus mechanism to a centralized authority yeah, because now, in, you, you way, lose all the benefits. Yeah, yeah by the way, that, that could change in the future. Like, you know, as, as Snowflake realizes... Uh, space and time is getting big in the market, and let's let's say we are massively successful, and and that will attract um, other companies to look at what we did and emulate it. The same way that Snowflake went out and became the first cloud database, and now everyone's trying to emulate what they did, right? So there's a a cycle to this kind of evolution. So I'm not saying like forever, but um, you know, space and time is decentralized, which I also mentioned earlier. Space and time is decentralized, like. For a lot of Web3 companies, that's all we need to be. All this other stuff is really fascinating. And proof of SQL re is required to make decentralization work in a trustless way. But you know, for a long time, I think we're pretty safe because Snowflake's not going to decentralize anytime soon. Google BigQuery, not going to decentralize anytime soon. Right? Teradata, not going to decentralize anytime soon. So. Interesting, That's amazing. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so I think many ask themselves now <laughs> how far you are in the development and when they can try an MVP. Yeah. Um, like when can they, when can people join the network? 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, really, uh, we're in controlled release right now with a subset of customers, which just means that we have, you know, we're onboarding one customer a week, more or less, and we want to make sure they have a good experience and that we, you know, take feedback from them. So we're going to continue to do that probably through April-ish. Um, probably around that same time, and maybe maybe March, uh, sometime in March, maybe, maybe late March or early April, we're also going to release our DAP, which is a, a way that you can kind of interface with space and time in a more ad hoc way. So rather than like, you know, uh, quote, joining the network, uh, you just put in a wallet address and you can run queries against blockchain data. In that particular scenario, you wouldn't be able to load your own data because it's just through the DAP, but that's okay. You can also join the network and that's going to probably come in May um, when we switch over to a cost per compute model uh, so that we can scale very seamlessly with our customers' needs. Right, right now we're a little clunky on the sales side. We're, you know, we kind of just have fixed con uh, contracts. So, you know, for a certain amount of uh, compute, it's a certain amount of dollars, just charged monthly, very basic. But, you know, we're working towards uh, really maturing the telemetry required to do that level of cost per compute, and in a decentralized way. If it was just doing that, it would be easy. But doing that in a tamper-proof, uh, decentralized method so that the node operators can get paid. We want nice, big, fat, happy node operators. We want our node operators to be, you know, very happy and excited to run space and time because that keeps the network fast and reliable and high availability. So Love to hear this. Oh, sorry. sorry. So, so I'll just, let me summarize real quick since I kind of went full circle with that. Um, look for the DAP late, uh, we'll say late March, early April. We'll have, uh, if you go out to docs.spaceandtime.io, you'll see our docs. We'll put it out there when it's available. Of course, you can check out our docs now. Um, we do have customers that are on board now. They've been running really since the very tail end of last year. Uh, so if you do have a project, you know, where you want to get kind of early access to this, uh, you know, feel free to reach out to myself, Stephen Hilton. Uh, happy to get you on the list. We do, you know, we do have probably, we're a little oversubscribed, but we can always try and squeeze people in. Love to hear this. Many people probably looking forward to it. <laughs> awesome. So the slowly onboarding of those um, companies, um, they will probably have high valuable data sets when they are assigned to certain um, high repetition clusters. Does that post any centralization risks? Yes, that's a good question. Centralization risks. Um, yeah, because I, I mentioned, yeah, I, I, we want to keep our node operators fat and happy because that's how you have a healthy network. But of course, um, if you don't structure the, incentive, the incentivization of that well, then what can happen is people can hyper-tune and start capturing too much of the value of the network, and then they become too big, right? Um, and so we have to make sure that um, we kind of come up with mechanisms to balance that out. And again, I said, we're, we're, we're still working through these problems right now. So uh, we have ideas on how we're going to do that. 
Um, we just want to make sure that we have a good distribution. You know, things like um, making sure that uh, you can, you, of course, you'll be able to select what nodes you want to run on. Like, because if you have your own nodes, we have to at least give you the ability to select running on your own nodes. That's kind of a no-brainer, right? And so there's got to be some mechanism to say, I want to select what nodes I run on, maybe based on performance or availability. Um, we want to incent, we want to give bonuses to node operators that do run high performance or high availability clusters. So if you need, you know, 90, uh, if you need uh, six nines worth of availability, right, that may cost a different amount than if it's three nines. But we also have to make sure that, again, we don't want people hyper-tuning. And so we need some mechanism to kind of bend that curve of, you know, of, of value to performance or availability. And then maybe just, again, other things we're thinking of is maybe network-wide network, network -wide incentives for decentralization. Because space and time is a network of clusters of data warehouses, right? Um, but it all works together. And so if we could say, look, of all the node operators, if there's a certain amount of decentralization, then an additional bonus kicks in for everybody. So, you know, thinking of things like that. And I'll also mention understanding where the nodes run, because node operation can be different than node providers. If you're going to go do the one-click deployment on Azure, and we have too many people doing that, uh, you can end up with centralization to a particular node vendor like Microsoft or, to, or Amazon. In fact, I read an article, I think it was on, I think it was on Cointelegraph, but like AWS today runs 52% of Ethereum, right? Yeah, if, I've, I've, I've heard about that. Yeah, that's, that's insane. Yeah, yeah. like if Amazon, <laughs> Amazon could just say, you know what, this was great and all, but nope, we're done. We're, no, of course they never would. But in theory, they could just shut off Ethereum, which would just obviously... I don't have to tell this audience what it would do to the, to the industry. So, you know, we're going to have proof of stake. So we'll have crypto economic protections. Um, we're going to have this balance of performance to, to value on the network. But uh, we're still kind of working through the, the more, we'll say, the finer details of that plan. That's great. Uh, that's it's not often very important. That, yeah. yeah, it's not often that we hear projects really consider every little aspect of decentralization and how important it actually is. Yep. Well, we, you know, we, we, we want to make a real decentralized network. Now, and, and again, just full disclosure, we're in controlled release. Right now, the software is designed to be decentralized, but we're the only node operator. Over the course of this year, the plan is to get us to be, you know, less than half of that. That's our target, uh, which will probably start around May, right, when we start taking on new node operators, but um, yeah. So like anyone, it's always a journey, uh, but everything we do is designed to promote the idea of decentralization so that we can, you know, really provide a, a very high performance, high available, but highly decentralized environment. Amazing, amazing. Um, we are now almost one hour in this AMA, and Stephen, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, would it be okay for you to continue with, let's say, two or three more questions before we wrap this up? Because we have, I think, total more than 50 questions from our community 
So that would be enough material for five more hours. <laughs> awesome. So, yeah, absolutely. This is this is fun. I don't know about five more hours of it, but I can certainly do a little while longer. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a better idea to have you for a second round. Yeah. <laughs> There you go. I can do that for sure. <laughs> that sounds better. Yeah. Okay. So let's go over to the next question. Um, since the data in the warehouse can be made permissioned or private and proof of SQL only verifies that the stored data wasn't tampered. Um, how can you verify that the off-chain data itself is not corrupted? Mm, yeah, yeah, another good question. Um, yeah, and I, you know, like I said, we're a data warehouse. You could use space and time just like another data warehouse. You load your data, You can insert records, you can delete records, you can update records, right? So the question is, okay, so if you apply proof of SQL to that, like how do you know that that hasn't been tampered with? Well, again, we know that it, we're, we're not protecting against the customers against themselves, we're protecting the customer against a decentralized network attack, right? So someone trying to come in and short circuit a query from your user on your data. Now that's at some Some of our tables are, any table, by the way, any table you can mark as public and say, I want to share this with the entire network. Um, now, there's going to, like, you're going to have to, um, we have a couple mechanisms to help make sure that that data is done in a responsible way. So, for example, our blockchain data uh, pulls from different blockchain, vend uh, from the different RPC endpoints pulls it in, we actually pull it multiple times and we'll come to consensus on it. We do it all at the same time, but that way, like we can say we're, you know, this is guaranteed to be not tampered with because we have different containers in different locations all running the same thing, coming to consensus, and then it gets loaded in. Because, you know, This is coming into the platform. There's no proof of SQL at that point. So we have to do things like, like just good old fashioned, you know, oracles basically run it a whole bunch of times and, and come to consensus on, you know, that uh, 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 the Byzantine fault tolerance. Um, we do have a mechanism built into the product called 3TL. Uh, if it, so you think of like ETL, which again is a paradigm out of data warehousing extract transform load well we took the e from the extract and we turned it backwards and it turns into a three very clever so we have this thing 3tl um it's a consensus engine it's python driven it's got four phases there's an extract a transform a machine learning and a load and it essentially uh helps us do things like um to say i want to extract weather data and so i'm going to Uh, spin up 3TL. I'm going to say I need seven copies of it, and it's, it automatically goes and spins up seven different containers, all pointed, all with the same Python script pointed to the same endpoint. They all do the thing. Uh, consensus is reached, and then that gets loaded into space and time. So we have thought about this 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 challenge, right? How do you prove that the data in is also verifiable? So we've we've done things like build our own uh, 3TL. Python framework. Uh, we uh, have tight integration with Chainlink, so we also use Chainlink for a lot of this. But like I said, uh, we are not going to be in the business of policing 
the data our customers bring into the network, public or not. We may end up, uh, we, we have the idea of a data provider where let's say that you bring in, let's say you're going to bring in Twitter data. You're going to bring in the Twitter feed and you're just going to stream it in. And it's quite a large data set, but that's okay. You stream it in. Um, you can mark that as public. And then if other people use that data set, then you as the data provider on the network are incentivized that you get a little bit of, uh, every time someone queries against your data in a public data set, you get a little bit of, of revenue for it, right? And so what we're trying to do is obviously create incentives for people to bring interesting data into our network um, and to, they can compete with each other. So let's say someone else brings in another uh, Twitter stream Right. You can decide whether you like that one or you like this one. Maybe this one's a little bit aggregated. This one's, you know, the other one's a little, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's more detailed, but it has more latency between, you know. So there'll be different characteristics. Um, so uh, when we get to that point, you know, we may end up with like certified partner status. So like if you're going to bring in Twitter data and you work with us to demonstrate that you're, you're taking the sufficient steps to, to, to be able to prove cryptographically or on chain that the data you're bringing in is, has not been tampered with, then you know, we can, we can you know, uh, increase the incentivization of you know, your queries that are hitting your data set. So some of this stuff is a little ways out yet, but like that's the idea that we, we have thought about it. We've actually built this 3TL engine to help us do it. This is something that other people now can use when they're getting into space and time, right? And you, it just takes a, a Python. You can write the Python to do anything you want. We use it for 3TL, but it's really just runs three Python scripts, comes to consensus, and then whoever ends up being elected the leader runs the fourth and final load. But, you know, you can do anything you want with that framework. I see, I see, yep. It's really interesting. Yeah, I think that will play a major role also to yeah, offer those proofs yeah, for different real life uh, data sets. Yeah, that's that's an interesting thing. I've I've read that you're also highly involved into the zero knowledge uh, topic. Will this play a part in this in this aspect? Yeah, um, I mean you can consider proof of SQL itself a snark. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, it's, you know, it's there. I think, by the way, I think like Z, the whole ZK thing is just super fascinating. Um, because especially when you talk about things around identity, right. And we have a lot of customers who are working or struggling with that right now. Um, you know, we like, we, besides our proof of SQL, there's not a lot of, um, of ZK stuff built into space and time right now. Uh, but as we continue working on things like identity, you know, right now everything's kind of key driven. It's all cryptographically guaranteed. Um, but that's not that's not the way a lot of people are used to interfacing with a data warehouse. If you're not used to, you know, I think probably the audience here is used to public-private keys. But if you're used to just logging in with the username and password into Snowflake, that can be a bit of a foreign experience for you. So there's other things that we're going to be working towards to kind of simplify that or, or to provide, we'll say, a Web2 interface around that. I understand. Thank you.
Great. So another question from our community members is the point of scalability. The thing with uh, node ecosystems is that they're usually struck with scaling and will adding more nodes um, simply provide horizontal scaling or what are you looking for? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mentioned that um, data warehouses in general, space and time is certainly included in this, are typically MPP platforms, massively parallel processing. And so that just means that if you have, uh, if you have five nodes on your platform and then you expand it to 10 nodes, then your processing doubles. Right? You can do twice as much work on the same logical data warehouse. Or, or you can return queries in half the time. And so, yeah, space and time is, is definitely you know, horizontally scalable like that. In fact, there's actually kind of two layers to it. Um, uh, there's, there's obviously the nodes within the, each cluster, that MPP cluster. And then, then all of those clusters are under an umbrella of just what we call the network or the space and time network, which, which ties all of these things together. So, you know, if we talk about high availability, if you have five, uh, five servers in your cluster and one of them falls over, that's okay. The, the, the database stays up because there's enough replication between the remaining four to be okay. But if the entire cluster goes down, that's okay because there's actually a secondary cluster that behind the scenes we do uh, change data capture, CDC, change data capture, which basically means we replicate the data from the primary to the secondary system for you behind the scenes. And so if your entire cluster goes down, that's cool. The gateway will just roll over to the secondary cluster and you're still up, right? And if the entire network goes down, I don't know why this would ever happen, but all the node operators go turn off their switch all at once. Probably at that point you have other problems because something really bad happened. But um, the secondary cluster is responsible for maintaining a backup of your data to a blob store. So to IPFS or like let's say you, you decide you want it actually backed up to an S3 bucket or a Azure blob store. But uh, IPFS is kind of the default choice just for decentralization. So even if the entire network went away, your data is not going anywhere because... Uh, the, you know, the one cardinal sin in data warehousing, you cannot lose data. So we will not lose data. We will stay up until, like I said, I don't know what would bring the whole network down. But did that, I'm sorry, I kind of I kind of went off on a little bit of a tangent. Did that answer the question? Most definitely. <laughs> I think that that was a, a very important aspect, yeah, especially for the Web3 community, yeah, this immutable aspect is, is I think, one of the, the key selling points yeah, of decentralization, yeah. Especially after the things we discussed before, yeah, with, with AWS hosting a majority of the, the web-free applications, I think that's, that's good to see that we are moving towards a decentralized future yeah, in this space. So, Stephen, um, we took a lot more time than, than planned yeah, today. So I, I really appreciate yeah, your time. And uh, before we wrap it up, I'd like uh, also to go more into, into the practical side and want to ask you, how can developers get started with space and time? Yeah, 
Um, well, like I mentioned, we're in controlled release right now, but our DAP is coming soon. Um, that's that's probably the like the biggest thing. Like when people can get in. When right now, if again, if you have a project and you are looking to join it from a company level, we can you know please reach out to me. We can see where we can maybe fit you into the schedule. But um, when we get that open DAP, that or really kind of an open beta phase, which will happen in a couple, in, I don't know, six weeks or so. Um, that's really where people can get in and they can start just writing queries on the blockchain data themselves. And I think that'll carry a lot of people uh, pretty far. If you want to get started um, with the docs, we have docs.spaceandtime.io. You can go out there and you can look at all the API calls. And we're, we're, as we you know continue to add more, um, you know we continue to update that. So that should always be uh, up to date as far as what's available. Um, yeah, and then, you know, like you said, if, if you have questions, uh, feel free to reach out to myself. Happy to, to, to do these kinds of things. Again, I love talking about data and space and time. This is, this is like candy. This is awesome. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. So where, where can listeners uh, get in touch with space and time? Where, where are the best uh, places to follow you and to get additional information or join the community? Yeah, um, on Twitter, on Discord, uh, you can go to our website, uh, spaceandtime.io. Space and time, all you know, obviously one word. Um, spaceandtime.io has links to all of our different socials, and and you can reach out to me on there. Perfect. Yeah, we will also post uh, afterwards the links yeah, to your Twitter and Discord and the web page that awesome. everyone can can follow the right link here. Yeah. That's also essential here in the web free space, unfortunately, yeah, <laughs> to be sure that you have the right the right connection, the right link. Okay, yeah, perfect, perfect. So at the end, um, we'd like to summarize the, the AMA with a new approach. And uh, we'd like to ask you, can you describe the whole concept of space and time to a six-year-old. Mm. I think that's that's quite challenging, especially with such a complex project. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 a toughie. Let's. So I, I um, yeah, you could argue the trucks and and trains kind of metaphor. You, you could probably get that by a six-year-old. But I'm gonna let me um, let me try this. So because so I've had couple six-year-olds now um superheroes they love superheroes um, my kids did definitely yeah <laughs> yeah you, everyone loves the avengers all the kids watch the avengers or superman or whatever but so all right so you, if you're talking to a six-year-old you're talking superheroes so you know uh there are some superheroes that work alone and that's fine right like they kind of go and solve little problems like batman goes off and solves the you know, problems but they're not huge problems. If you have huge problems, you have aliens invading New York, you need a team of heroes to go solve that problem, right? And you need a team of heroes to, uh, because they have different strengths and weaknesses within that team. So some of them are super strong, right? And they can lift hundreds of tons. And some are super fast, like you have the flash and they can do thousands of things a second. And you really need both if you're gonna go solve some of these really big problems. 
right? So you need someone who can do the heavy lifting. You need someone who can do a thousand things in a minute. And so space and time is kind of like that. We have these teams of, of heroes designed to solve problems. Now, we solve them for our customers, but that customer ultimately rolls down to people just living their lives. And so you can imagine there's this team, but it's not just one team because Space and Time has a network of superhero teams, right? So if you have uh, Justice League over here and you have the Avengers over here, I know I'm changing universes, but the six-year-old doesn't know that. So <laughs> they're going to be able, they, they can like text each other, they can call each other and say, hey, we're in, we're, we have too much work over here. We have too many bad guys. We need help. And the other you know, the other superhero team can step in and help them out. And they can, and so they can solve more problems together than they can individually. And the nice thing is, every once in a while in comic books, the superhero goes bad, right? They, they get their brain taken over by mind control or whatever. And so maybe uh, to, to prevent that, because that's never good when a superhero starts misbehaving, uh, space and time, we have a little magic we have math. We have this piece of math that's magic called proof of sequel. But we can apply that math to these superheroes and make sure that they cannot do bad things. And if they do, they lose their power. All of a sudden, the Flash can't go fast, and all of a sudden, Superman can't lift anything. And so that way, we don't need a boss of all the superheroes. The superheroes just engage to save the world whenever it's needed or to solve really big problems whenever it's needed. So, you know, we're, we're, we're solving the problem. We're solving the problems of the world. We're helping our customers solve the problems of the world, uh, you know, by providing them that foundation, that network of heroes. I don't know, how was that? Was that? Was that, that was amazing. You've got to talk the language of the audience, right? Like six-year-old. That's great. Now, now, now I also get it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <Awesome>. <laughs> That was really funny. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. So, Stephen, thank you very much for your precious time. It was really fun to talk to you. And I think the, the audience really learned a lot today. It was amazing. And yeah, so I think we, we did hmm, about... 10 to 15 percent yeah, of our questions today <laughs> so we have something more in store for another round and i hope to to welcome you on another ama soon yeah awesome i'm looking yeah, forward to it thank you very much Stephen. <laughs> looking All forward. Right. thank you thank you i appreciate it have a good day everyone thank you, you very much thank well, you very much and <clears throat> yeah before the audience go we had a competition yeah for the best uh, AMA question and Stephen was so kind to uh, select the three best questions of today and um, the winners are drum roll <laughs> two of the questions came from what a surprise Joseph JX13 congratulations you will receive $200 in a stable coin. And the third reward goes out to James Crypto King. Congrats. Really awesome. great questions today. And 
yeah, I'm I'm proud yeah that our community is so deep into those projects and also can challenge everyone on the technical side. Yeah, I'm I'm highly impressed. So thank you very much for tuning in. Please leave a like and a retweet to spread the word about space and time. And yeah, I hope to see you soon on one of our next AMAs. And I think the next one is already in a few days with uh, Celestia. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Goodbye, everyone. This recording has been prepared and made available by VVV. It is for informational purposes only and should not be considered a solicitation to sell, buy or subscribe to any financial instruments or products. VVV does not express any opinion as to the present or future price of any instrument mentioned in this recording. The information provided in this recording is believed to be valid and accurate on the date it is first published, but VVV, along with its directors, officers and employees, does not accept any liability for any loss arising from the use of this information as it may change in the future without notice. Any decision made by a party after listening to this recording shall be on the basis of its own research and not based on the information and opinions provided by VVV.